feel when somebody's gone? My name is Teresa Weekly, and this is Unashamed. This is a journey that is uncomfortable for me, but I obviously think it's important, which is why I'm here. They say there's no growth without discomfort, and I really don't want to get stuck in this rut of constantly questioning, um, wishing to change the past. And maybe this is something that you've dealt with. Maybe you're stuck in a similar pattern. If so, I would love to hear from you, and I'll get into how to reach out to me later in this episode. Um, if you're still stuck in that rut, then I hope that this will help you. There are a few things that you should know about me. Um, my mom had four girls. We did not have what most would consider an easy childhood. Our parents divorced early on. They fought over us a lot, and we switched school districts frequently. Um, we relied on welfare at different points in our life. There was an author, William Arthur Ward, who said that adversity causes some men to break and others to break records. I personally think that most people fall somewhere in the middle, um, but my sister did not. It broke her. This time last year, I had no idea how much our lives were about to change, and I'm not talking about the pandemic. Maybe that's why I've busied myself with uh, big projects lately. My husband and I are uh, finishing our basement, and that involves a whole lot of things that we've never had to do before, um, including, <laughs> we didn't do the drywall. I, neither of us trusted ourselves to do drywall, uh, but we did do the painting, and we're doing the trim work, and the cabinets, and the flooring. Um, bought a new miter saw, and have watched a million videos <laughs> on how to get that perfect 45 degree cut. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of mistakes, um, and I know it's not going to be perfect, but it has been a good distraction from this anniversary that's looming over our heads. On a Tuesday night, January 28, 2020, I was leaving from seeing the Broadway show Hamilton in downtown Grand Rapids, and I was on my way home, and I got a call from one of my sisters, and she had barely said the words hello when I asked, is she gone? And the answer was yes, Tara was gone. It's easy to cry. Tara was our oldest sister. Um, her biological dad kidnapped her when she was a toddler, took her to California. My mom hired a detective to track her down, and my dad legally adopted her when they were married a few years later. Then after having three more girls, um, my parents divorced. There was a lot of changing homes, a lot of changing schools. Tara was just old enough for it to really affect her more than it did the rest of us. You'd never know how insecure she was if you met her. She was confident. She seemed so confident. She seemed ready to take on anyone who dared to challenge her. Um, I was scared to confront her about anything until I was at least 30. She was also really smart and really caring. And all of that ended up being a, a dangerous and strange combination for her. When I got that phone call and I asked that question, I think I already knew the answer. Tara struggled a lot with many things. She was an alcoholic. Um, she was diagnosed with bipolar two, And I also suspect she struggled with borderline personality disorder. We hadn't heard from her at that point in 24 hours. And that was after my younger sister, who found her drunk at home with our niece, um, who was in high school, had taken our niece and then left the house. We didn't hear from Tara again. 
feeling settles in your bones. It doesn't really matter how she did it, only that she did it. And that's the part that I really just can't shake. The fact that she chose this, she did this, and we didn't do enough to stop it. That we should have done more, and what if, I guess you could fill in that blank in a million different ways, and that's pretty much what runs through my mind every day. I have three children, eight years and younger. The youngest one is one year old. Um, and they ask me, you know, how did Antara die? What happened to her? And I tell them, um, well, she had a disease in her mind and ultimately that's what she died from was this disease in her mind that she tried to fight and she tried to fight but she just couldn't win. And I say it to them like this to protect them but <laughs> truly I should believe it and I wish I could believe it because she did have a disease in her mind and she did fight it and fight it and she just couldn't win. But as much as I tell myself that, as much as I have heard that from other people, I don't know, I just, you still go back to those same old thoughts that what if I had listened more? What if I had shown up more for her? Um, why did I pull away from her at the time that I did? And why didn't I spend more time with her? Of course, it's easy to forget all the reasons that I did those things and what led up to that behavior. I didn't just decide one day, oh, I don't want to spend time with her. There were a lot of different things, um, wanting to protect my kids. The fact that she was unpredictable when she drank. You know, they say someone has to choose to get better, that they have to, to work for it. Um, you can't force them to make it happen. And that's kind of part of what kills me, too, is that she, she was trying to get better, um, and she had chosen to and was working towards it. I just didn't know a lot of what she was doing until it was too late and found out after the fact that she had been going to ketamine clinics, um, which is something that can be helpful for alcoholics to overcome their addiction. I think there were reasons that she was scared to tell us that or scared to tell us that if she had relapsed, um, but she did seem to be getting better. She seemed to be doing well. and. And then she, I guess I've heard that for heroin addicts who relapse um, after being clean, it's more dangerous for them in terms of what, what could happen if they overdose. And I guess I never thought about how that could affect someone who's an alcoholic. I know she had thought about her decision many times. Obviously, she'd made the decision, but I don't think she would have acted on it in that moment if she had been sober. I know it's important to talk about these things. I'm learning that more and more every day. Um, it's just, you feel like you're talking in circles because you think you've come to some realization and then you circle back to the, the what ifs and the but I should haves. Um, the real question I've asked myself over and over and over again in the last year is, could I have saved my sister? So I took that question to someone who treats people like her every day. Um, his name is Dr. Eric Atchis. He's a psychiatrist in Grand Rapids. Thank you for joining me for this podcast. I appreciate your time. When you get people with that question, what is your response? I would never blame a family member, a friend, uh, after someone ha has been lost to suicide. But I would also like to deflect uh, blame from the person who's passed away. Often there's nothing, they have tried to reach out for help, they've had difficulty uh, reaching out for help, and they 
for for one reason or another have not been able to get what they needed uh, to move from their spot where they feel so hopeless. And I think um, hopefully as our society grows and continues to address this question, we will be able to move in a direction where there are more helpful and useful opportunities for people who are feeling like they're stuck in a place that they can't get out of. Something that comes up for me over and over again is I didn't even know that she had a gun. She never should have had access to a gun, especially not given her history. How could someone let her have a gun? Um, And that if she didn't have that in that particular moment when she had been drinking and was in that mental state, that this wouldn't have happened. It's hard to move past questions like that. Um, There is no question that the presence of firearms in a home increased the risk of uh, a violent death. And um, there are some common sense things that can be done to try to mitigate some of that risk. Um, There are lock boxes that you can put ammunition in. Guns should be stored, uh, locked and unloaded in other places. Um, Perhaps keys should be surrendered to those uh, containers where that might be stored. But again, in your situation where you didn't even know that she had access to a gun or that there was a gun in the home, um, there was really nothing that you could have done to prevent that. Um, I do think there is a responsibility uh, from a public public messaging and public awareness about the risks of firearms and about some of the things that we can do to make sure that responsible gun owners can continue to own guns, but to do it in a way that protects the people that live with them, that live around them. Um, so there there are methods that are available to minimize the risk of, of accidental or suicide uh, uh, using a firearm. One of the things I've found that makes me actually kind of angry when I hear it, and I never considered it before, is um, after my sister's death, on this side I had people saying, there's nothing you could have done. Um, you basically just said it, this wasn't your fault. But then on this side, you see um, PSAs saying, you can save a life, there is something you can do. Um, if you recognize the signs, if you do this, if you do that, you can, you can save a life. And it's very confusing to me to hear both of these messages and try and understand how they fit together when they seem pretty contradictory. The challenge in holding both of those messages is that in some senses they're both true. Um, There are some things that we can do that are very, I'd say relatively simple, that can make a difference in someone's life. Um, You may pass somebody on the street and, and smile at them, for example. Um, you never know how that smile may impact that person that day. Um, there are, of course, stories of people who will say, I was on my way to a bridge and I was planning to jump off. And if nobody said hi to me or nobody smiled at me, I was going to jump off. And then they, you'll, somebody will have said something to them or smiled at them and saved their life in that way. So there are very small things that we as individuals can do that can sometimes make a huge difference. That being said, um, it is not, I don't think, possible to know uh, the entire situation um, that we're in or that others may be in. Um, So honestly, I I think both are true. I think we have an opportunity to make a difference, and we should take every opportunity to do that. But if we find ourselves in a situation where things are out of our control, um, we really 
we can't blame ourselves for the actions of others. I think I think that's a really important principle that um, you know we what is our what do we have ultimate responsibility for? It's our own actions and our own um, you know our own responses to stresses and other situations and. I think it's a dangerous line to say that we then have responsibility for the actions of someone else, especially if we don't know all of the all of the inputs and what's happening in their lives and the things that are going on. It's easy to look back and see how something progressed and and where maybe if, if I had done this, you never know what could have happened, but you start to see the points where you could have acted differently. Um, with my sister, there were plenty of times where she reached out for help and then you kind of felt like it kind of bit you that you helped and um, there was not a lot of trust with addiction it's it's more complicated and there's enabling and trying not to enable and how do you know if what you're doing is trying to do the right thing by not being enabling versus maybe leaving someone leaving them in, in a rough spot and not helping not just not enabling but but not being helpful I mean I, th I think one of the things that I would encourage family members particularly who are dealing with loved ones who are struggling with addiction is there really are um, groups that can be very helpful so you don't feel alone in those struggles um, Al-Anon, Narcanon are groups that are there for family members and for friends of people with addiction. And they, <clears throat> through working through uh, those groups with other people who are dealing with the same thing, you begin to learn, okay, what are the boundaries I can set? Where are the places where I need to, to give tough love? Where are the places where I need to maybe uh, make an exception um, and, and, um, and again, reach in and help? Um, and I think that those types of settings and those types of groups can be really important for sorting that out. That said, <clears throat> I think we all try to make the best, most loving decisions we can with the information we have at the time. And <clears throat> if you can, it, it, you know, if you or anyone are doing that, there is, I just really can't assign any sort of You've done the best that you can. You've done the best that you know how. Um, and I, I ask people, you know, don't, please don't blame yourself. I mean, you have done the best that you could uh, for your loved one, your family member, your friend. Um, I always encourage people to reach out for help. Um, and I realize that that's easy to say and sometimes very hard to do. And sometimes it feels like the help isn't as effective as I might like it to be, um, particularly with a relapsing, remitting illness like addiction, um, the the natural course is for for there to be relapses over time, and that can be very, very difficult for for friends and family members. You'd like to think, okay, I took you to help. You even went to a rehab facility. You should be better now, and that's just not the reality of how addiction works most of the time. There's often a series of relapses and remissions, um, and, and hopefully um, at some point that remission sticks and somebody can have an extended period of sobriety and really return to uh, a life that is more stable and more productive. Um, but which one of the treatment episodes will allow that to stick, 
I can't predict for any individual person. And it seems like with every episode and relapse, there are fewer and fewer people willing to help. That's where I felt things had landed with Tara, was we'd been through this before, and I don't know, it's almost like you don't know what to do anymore. That's absolutely, you're, you are not alone in that story. That is, that is the story we hear from family member, friends, uh, everybody who's ever been, who's tried to love somebody who's struggling with addiction. That is a, a story that is almost universal. I mean, it's, they, unfortunately, the addiction leads them to do things they might not otherwise do, and they end up hurting people and burning bridges. And um, that is... Uh, an incredibly powerful and damaging um, consequence of the addiction and of the illness. And um, it's, it's no fault of your, I mean, if somebody was, was, you know, taking advantage of me once and then twice, at, at some point you have to say, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I have to set a boundary because it's, it's not good for me. It's not good for my family. I can't, I can't do that. So, <clears throat> I think um, one of the things that can happen through Al-Anon, through Narconon, some of those programs, is that you develop a healthy boundaries um, that are appropriate um, and, and always yet saying to the person, we still love you, um, but we can't have, I can't have you over at my house if you're going to be drinking, or um, I can't have you over at my house around my kids if you're going to be using drugs. Um, so there's, um, you know, there are appropriate boundaries and yet still saying to the person, you know, let's try to get you help. Let's get you feeling well again. How can I do that? Is the grieving process different when you've lost someone to suicide than when you've lost someone to another kind of illness or um, an accident? I think so, um, in part because of the stigma around mental mental health issues, the stigma around addiction. Um, you know, it's it's not a um, uh, you know it's not a big heart surgery that somebody had and they didn't make it out of, for example, um, where you might say, "Oh my gosh, this was horrible! I can't believe it happened." Um, but we did everything we could. We took the person to the hospital. We did what we could, um, and it just it was their time. And I think that um, it's much harder for us as survivors to be able to say that about somebody whose life was cut short by suicide. Um, and not, not to minimize the loss of a loved one for other reasons. But I think there is a, a psychological component, perhaps, to a death by suicide that um, there may not be quite as much uh, with some other uh, um, well even from a religious standpoint you might be able to say despite the grief that you're feeling well this was um, God decided that it was their time and you don't in most religious organizations that's not something that you would say about someone who in a lot of people's minds made this decision for themselves yeah no I, th I think that's a um, that's a really important concern and because of people's beliefs, uh, spiritual beliefs, that can be a, another kind of very difficult thing to grapple with. I think there's a lot of questions that we grapple with with regard to death by suicide that might not occur with other, uh, with other types of death. 
you know, whatever God you might believe in has got to be big enough to recognize this was a person that was struggling and this was a person that felt that they didn't have other options, perhaps. Following what happened with my sister, I mean, I struggled with that as well, especially I, I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a one-year-old. And um, the one-year-old doesn't understand any of this, but sure. the older two, we, we didn't tell them exactly what happened. We kind of explained it in the sense, as I mentioned, of she had an illness in her brain and um, that's what she died from yeah. and and I think about explaining it to them that way and that was advice that I had received was to explain it that way and then I think why can't I just listen to that yeah. advice no, I, th I think that ultimately is right. I mean, I think the explanation that you're giving to your kids is the right explanation. Um, I, I think, um, you know, so much of the way we view um, mental illness, death by suicide, is, has been layered, uh, is layered on years of, of thinking about it, years of um, maybe not wanting to think about it, um, uh, things we've been told, things we've heard, um, things we've experienced um, that are create a uh, a worldview or a view of suicide that is different from other deaths. Um, and I do think I am hopeful that we will get to a point where that is no longer the case. That we won't. There won't be all of that extra layered on, um, you know, psychological pressure or feelings of guilt. And the reason that I'm hopeful about that is um, if you think about what has happened with the way we talk about cancer over the last 30 years or so. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, uh, five, six years old, somebody in our community would develop cancer and it was talked about in hushed tones and nobody really talked about it. They were at the hospital. There was fear about whether you could go visit them and, and contract cancer from visiting them. I mean, people had a lot of, of thoughts about cancer and it was a very stigmatized illness. And <clears throat> when you fast forward to today, I, I don't know of anybody who thinks about cancer that way. It's, it, you know, we've been able to to, through science and education, have a better understanding of what happens in cancerous illnesses. And we don't blame people for them. We don't, we're not afraid of them. We're not afraid to visit them in the hospital. In fact, we, we now pour out empathy and support for people who have cancer. And my hope is that we'll be able to turn that same corner when it comes to mental health conditions, addiction, that we'll be able to reach out to people with uh, with empathy and with hope, and uh, to provide treatment, support, um, better treatments tomorrow than we have today. I'm a researcher. I, I I hope we can do better tomorrow than we do today to help people. Maybe that's helpful in thinking about answering that question. Then, is could I have done anything? Um, how would you answer that question if it was cancer? You know, I, I think with cancer some of the struggle people have might be um, if I had caught it earlier, for example. You know, if I had found this cancer, this lump, whatever it may be, a year ago, you know, would I, would I have survived or would my loved one have survived? And um, 
I, you know, we keep moving. Medicine keeps marching forward to try to detect things like cancer sooner and earlier so that we can have better treatment options and make a difference in people's lives and, and save them from, uh, uh, you know, from a bad outcome. And the same is true for, for mental health and addiction. We are, we are trying to do better and we're trying to learn more and to understand more about uh, what are some of the pathophysiologic causes, um, how can we impact it, whether it's through counseling or medications or other treatments, bright light therapy <laughs> on a cloudy day. What are the things that we need to do um, to try to impact these deadly illnesses so that they don't impact people um, in the way that they have in the past? Hopefully someday we'll be able to turn that same corner uh, with, with mental health conditions. Dr. Eric Atchis, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I will still probably go back and forth wondering if I could have done something to save Tara um, or why I didn't. But obviously the only reason I know now what I should have done is because of what had happened and if she was still here. Anyway, I hope that more days than not I reach the conclusion that Dr. Atchis is right. Um, the other thing I, I wonder every day is what she must have been thinking, what must have been going through her head for her to make that decision. And when a person does make that decision and then acts on it, is there ever a point where they wish they hadn't? Is there ever something that you can do to stop them in that moment? Um, and I'll be talking with a woman who did make that decision and acted on it years ago, but has survived to to tell that story and help others understand. Uh, my conversation with her is coming up in the next episode of Unashamed. You'll find information on how to reach out to me if you have a story you'd like to share or you wanna connect because you're going through something similar. That information along with resources that Dr. Atchis discussed are listed in the details of this episode. If you or someone you know is feeling depressed, if you're feeling like life just isn't worth living, know that there is help. There is help out there, um, and your loved ones will not be better off without you, no matter what you think. You should call 1-800-273-2255. Things always get better with time.